Welcome to the Runner's World Show. I'm Editor-in-Chief David Willey. This week, we'll hit the road to test out an unusual pair of running shoes and introduce you to a runner with a surprising reason for decking himself out in ridiculous running costumes. But first, because it's Boston Marathon weekend, we bring you an interview with one of the race's most famous bandits. Thanks for joining us. Hear me out. It's what I've learned. The road can be rough. This year marks the 50th anniversary of Runner's World, and we've been looking back quite a bit at all the changes that our sport has seen in the past five decades. Arguably, the biggest change, and the most important, is women. There are millions of women running today for all kinds of reasons. And when it comes to race participation, there are more women running than men. That makes it even more unbelievable, even inconceivable, that until pretty recently, competitive running was totally off limits to women. It wasn't until 1984 that there even was a women's Olympic marathon. Wearing her white painter's hat, running in Los Angeles, Joan Benoit won that race and changed history forever. This year, and in fact this week, also marks the 50th anniversary of the first woman running the world's oldest and probably the most prestigious marathon, the Boston Marathon. That woman was Roberta Gibb, who ran quite a bit more under the radar. In fact, she had to hide in the bushes at the start so she wouldn't be noticed. I sat down with Roberta, or Bobby as she's known, in Los Angeles during Olympic Marathon Trials Weekend. We were joined by Amby Burfoot, editor-at-large of Runner's World and the author of First Ladies of Running, 22 Inspiring Profiles of the Rebels, Rule Breakers, and Visionaries Who Changed the Sport Forever. Bobby's story is featured in his book, and I started our conversation by asking her to take us back to the Boston starting line 50 years ago. I had a blue hooded sweatshirt pulled up over my hair, so I, I had had to figure out how, uh, here's the catch-22, how can you prove some, you can do something you're not allowed to do? So here I was, I knew I was doing something that was not legal, and I didn't know what what I was going to run into. Certainly it was way outside the social norm, and it was against the rules, and and the men could have easily shouldered me out of the race, but within just a few minutes of me jumping out of the bushes in the middle of the pack, I have to give them credit, studying my anatomy from the rear, they said, I could hear them telling me, is that a girl, is that a girl? And so I smiled, I knew I had to keep it upbeat. And so I smiled and turned around, and it is a girl. And then I wish my wife would run. I wish my girlfriend would run. And I said, I want to take the hood off, but I'm afraid if they know I'm a woman, they'll throw me out. And they said, we won't let them throw you out. So not only did they not shoulder me out of the race, they were very protective and and wanted me to stay in. All right. So you mentioned the bushes. We'll come back to the bushes in just one second. But we should also say that... You tried to enter the race officially. Yeah, I did. I wrote. I had moved to San Diego at that point, and I had written to the BAA, the Boston Athletic Association, for my for my number, never realizing, you know, it was a men's division race and there was no women's division race. And I got a letter back from Will Cloney, who was the race director, and it said, women are not physiologically able to run marathons and we can't take the medical liability and then he explained that it was a men's division race and women weren't qualified to run the uh, AAU sanctioned amateur athletic union sanctioned 
race, the longest one for women was a mile and a half. And it shows the damage of what prejudice can do, because if you believe you can't do something, or if someone else believes you can't do something, then um, you're never allowed to train enough to to discover that, in fact, you can do it. So when I got that letter, I said, okay, this is a false belief, and false beliefs keep us captive. And so I said, here is a way I can change these centuries and centuries of oppression of women if I can just show that this one belief about women is wrong, and that will throw into question every other false belief about women. Ambie, as you said earlier, you had run your first Boston Marathon in 1965, the year before Bobby ran. Were you running the 1966 race as well? I, I actually missed that. I had an injury that year. It was one of the few Bostons that I that I missed in my early years. I was back with uh, Roberta the next several years, but I missed 66. I don't remember how it filtered to me that a woman had run the Boston Marathon and finished it. I was just very, very excited and very happy about that. And uh, I'll add that I think that uh, Roberta was the absolute perfect candidate to be the first one there and to win the three races in a row as she she, she has. And she's just a, a, a wonderful spokesperson for the uh, spirit and beauty of running. So you grew up outside Boston, had seen the Boston Marathon, and it inspired you to run. And yeah. as you said, you moved out to San Diego. Take us back to the day when you were coming back from San Diego and starting with, as Ambie wrote in the book, the night before, you bought your first ever pair of running shoes. <laughs> yeah. Right? Take us back to that moment. There, uh, I went to San Diego uh, a, a few days before the race. It was right down to the wire. And my friend Bill Gukin had said, you know, you shouldn't run in those nurse's shoes. I've been training in nurse's shoes. You should get some boys running shoes. Well, I had never thought of boys running shoes. So... I got, there was a running store down there, and I bought a pair of boys' running shoes. But then I went on to Boston. Then I got got to St. James Square. I called my parents, and I said, I'm home. Um, I'm going to run the marathon. And they really thought I was nuts. I mean, my father thought I was literally delusional. My mother fed me a huge dinner of roast beef and apple pie and the whole thing, and I didn't know anything about carbo loading. My dad, the next day, my dad went storming out of the house, and, no, you're not going to run any marathon, and so forth, And but I convinced my mom to drive me to the start. Tell us tell us what else you wore in addition oh, to your yeah. boys' running shoes. In the morning, I went dashing around the house trying to figure out what I was going to put on. I found a pair of my brother's cocky Bermuda shorts and tied them up with a string, because, uh, of course, they were too big. So I had this string tie, all them, and I, and I had a black tank top bathing suit, which is what I wore before they had jog bras and stuff. But I was definitely trying to hide my femininity. I didn't want them to see my hair. I had my hair pulled back. I had the hood on. I was doing everything I could so they wouldn't think I was a woman. As Ambie writes in the book, eventually she spotted some blooming forsythia bushes about 100 yards in front of the start line. Right. Why did you end up in, in, in the bushes? That's how you started the race, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I was looking for a place where I could hide so they wouldn't pull me out because I thought, oh, my gosh, the police are going to arrest me. The officials are going to throw me out. And the most important thing was that I not be stopped because if they stopped me, I wouldn't be able to prove what I had come to prove. 
And as Ambi writes in the book, one of the high points, and this is later in the race, is when you come upon Wellesley College. That is the loudest part of the race. It's mm-hmm. famous for screaming Wellesley students right. lining the road. And did they realize at the time that there was a woman running up? Yes, word spread because the press immediately, when, once they realized there was a woman in the race, the, the press got, oh, this is history in the making. We've got to follow this story. And they asked me, what's your name? So the press knew. And then there's a, ra- a local radio station, unknown to me at the time, but later I found out, was broadcasting my progress. So the women at Wellesley knew I was coming. They were listening to the radio. And then when they finally saw me, they let out a huge screech. In those days, the women just lined up and you had to run. You had to scrunch down and run between them. And so um, I got there, and the women were just going crazy, screaming and yelling. People were crying, and women were crying. And one woman standing over on the side with a bunch of kids was going, Ave Maria! Ave Maria! And, you know, I really felt as though somehow this was going to change their lives, and the, things were never going to be the same. And and they all felt it. And And, of course, after that point, the Boston Marathon gets famously hard. I was holding back, holding back, holding back, uh, because I wanted to make sure I finished, because if I had not finished, it would have set women back 50 years. And so there was this huge weight of responsibility on me, because here I was making the statement. And so I was actually running quite under where I wanted to run, but um, it wasn't hard at all. And uh, immediately up to 17, 18, 19 miles, I was still feeling frolicky, but what was happening was um, I wasn't used to running on pavement, and my sh- these new shoes were, were killing me, and they weren't as thick as the—and so my feet were killing me, and they were getting worse and worse, and blisters were bleeding, and it really hurt. It was like running on nails. So by a mile, maybe 21 or 22, I was really dehydrated. My feet were killing me, and, um, and my pace dropped way off. That's where— uh, my my three hour marathon kind of died right there, but um, but it wasn't up until that last bit was it was very easy. And then how was the finish? Oh, the finish was great. And I come down and make that turn. Were you still uh, nervous that about the reception that you would get? No, by this okay. time I knew everybody was positive. People were yelling and screaming, "Out of go, girly!" The police were all friendly, and hey, you went that away and. Um, so I picked up my pace a little, pain in pain as I was, and came down across the finish line. And the bleachers were, people were going crazy and everything. And the governor of Massachusetts, John Volpe, came down and shook my hand. And then um, the other um, men who had run with me came, came around me, and they were all, um, you know, very kind of loving and proud. And, and then we had... Um, they usually go off to have a marathon stew afterwards, but they they wanted me to come with them. So I, they took me with them, and we got to the door, and they said, sorry, no women allowed. So they were really, you know, they really apologized to me and said, we're really sorry, you know, we didn't make the rules. And so um, then I took a taxi home, and that's where I got to my house, and there were, the whole street was full of cars. All the press was there, and 
my parents were standing there totally bewildered by all this. And the phone is ringing off the hook. Congratulations on your daughter. And they go, oh, my God, what is this daughter who, you know, a few hours ago we thought was insane? What has she done now? And, uh, you know, my, my dad is all proud of me, he puts his arm around me and, you know, oh, yeah, sort of like he I don't remember exactly what he said. It was sort of like, yeah, we knew she could do it kind of attitude. And my mother was all trying to serve everyone some kind of uh, food or something. It was just it, they were so cute. So, Abby, you've had a front row seat for. What really probably is the most significant change in the sport of running in the past five decades, which is the growth and participation of women. You you grew up at a time when it was mostly a male sport, if not entirely a male sport. How does this look to you now, looking at the sport and all the women that are competing at a very, very high level? Whenever I speak to crowds of runners at expos, clinics, or wherever, I get the question, you know, what are the biggest changes that you've seen in running in the last 50, I've almost been 55 years now? There have been three of them, women, women, (laughs) and women. But it's really been the women's running revolution that has changed this sport and, and I ran my first Boston Marathon in 1965. There were zero women in the field. Zero. That was the sum total of women runners, marathoners in the country. The next year, Bobby comes into the field, and we've got one. And the year after that, Catherine Switzer. And it started very, very slowly. There were no opportunities for them. They had to create the opportunities, and that meant... Running without race numbers, starting on the sidewalks, getting jostled by the male officials who who controlled the sport at that point. Uh, it was really hard at the beginning, and the, mainly it was hard to try to explain to anyone else why you would want to run because nobody uh, did. What made you feel like this was a book that you wanted to do, Ambie, a, a, a man writing about female pioneers? I had a few people who told me that I shouldn't for that very reason, and and I thought quite a bit about that as as a matter of fact. But in the end, it was the fact that I was lucky enough to grow up in the sport at the the same time as the women did. And I met them in the 60s and the 70s, and we all became friends because, frankly, even the male runners in that period were weirdos. And we were all trying to do the same thing at that point. We were all trying to grow the sport any way we could. And whether it was more guys running, great. Women running, great. Older people running, great. You know, bring it on and, and add them to, to, the, uh, to the movement, as it were. So I was just lucky to be in place historically when so many of the first women began running. And uh, I wanted to tell their stories. Ambie, in addition to Bobby, you spoke to 21 other pioneers. What are some of the qualities that you noticed about all of them? Are are there many that they share? What I was struck by was that the women who ran in the early days somehow, for some reason, had an innate love of running. They had an innate need to express themselves, as we all do, I believe. They found out that they were pretty good at running, 
And so they were like, well, I'd like to express myself through running. They were just trying to be themselves, and they felt that running was one of the ways they could express themselves if given the chance. And when they weren't, they itched a little bit and dug a little bit and did the difficult things like run races where they were not appreciated or acknowledged or even timed, but they went out there and did it anyway. Well, you've shown how things can change profoundly, but also how things can change incrementally over time through running. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, Bobby Gibb and Amby Burfoot. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank Thank you. you. It's been wonderful to meet you and to, to talk and have this opportunity. Thank you. Thank you. Bobby actually ran the Boston Marathon the next two years, although in 1967 she wasn't alone. Catherine Switzer also ran, and she was actually granted a bib by the BAA after she applied using her initials of K.V. Switzer. You may have seen some of the famous photographs of the race director, Jock Semple, trying to rip that bib off of Catherine Switzer's gray sweatshirt. And you may have seen photos of Catherine's boyfriend at the time, a football player at Syracuse, body-checking Jock Semple off the course. So even though Catherine Switzer's run got a bit more media attention, it was Bobby Gibb in 1966 who really got everything started. But it wasn't until 1972 that Boston officially opened the race to women. Eight of them ran, and eight of them finished. Nina Cusick ran three hours, 10 minutes, and 26 seconds, to become the first official female champion of the Boston Marathon. And in 2015, 45% of the runners who entered Boston were women. To hear my full interview with Bobby Gibb and Amby Burfoot, go to runnersworld.com audio, where you'll also find a link to Amby's book, First Ladies of Running. Here at Runner's World, our lunch runs often double as testing time. We're constantly evaluating the latest models of running shoes. And recently, we asked our shoes and gear editor to give us the lowdown on an innovative new shoe during his noontime run. Then editor Christine Fennessy caught up with him in the parking lot for a couple big picture shoe questions. I'm Jeff Dengate, shoe and gear editor here at Runner's World, and I'm running in Emmaus, Pennsylvania, near the headquarters of the magazine, and uh, we have lovely paved roads, lightly trafficked, and it's also a good chance to really test the shoes. I'm wearing the uh, Nike Lunar Epic today. It's a shoe that really caught a lot of attention because the upper is snug and looks like a boot. It has like a, a, high, a high top to it. Um, which is great and you feel it when you're wearing it but as I'm running here it just disappears like you don't actually feel that collar at all it just kind of feels like you're wearing a high top sock uh, like a a mid-calf sock which is really cool but I think what's sweet about this shoe is what's happening under the foot you know as I'm here on the pavement running it looks kind of beefy but it's a pretty firm ride Uh, that lunar foam really kind of gives you just enough cushioning still responsive so you know I could go fast it just takes the hard edge off the road lets you really feel what's happening and then it's shoes really flexible has all these grooves in the bottom which are great for trapping rocks but also you can hear it as you run you hear it's really kind of a crazy sensation Um, but it gives you great grip on anything wet dry uh, just really having a lot of fun with that So I'm out here on the running track that we have behind the Rodale offices. 
it's about a mile crushed gravel path that we do speed work on Wednesdays. Coach Bud leads us through some workouts. Uh, and it's just a great place to come out and take some easy miles, get off the pavement. Um, and I really notice it in these lunar epics, the softness. You know, you can actually feel the road. They, I say they're, the shoes do have some cushioning, but they are kind of firm. And, and I like a softer ride, typically. That's uh, my preference. And so I can feel the harsh edge of the road a little bit. Running on the soft gravel is great. It's, the shoe's still responsive and just, you know, you don't feel like it's too soft. You can toe off good and uh, it feels lively, but you, you get a nice soft landing and it really kind of comes to life on this soft surface. The one thing I will note is I, I stopped and took a look at the, the treads. It's the crushed gravel, lots of little small, tiny rocks. And anybody who's running the first generation Nike Freeze know you, you just would spend time picking rocks out after you work out. And that's what I'm going to end up doing with these shoes. The bottom is all what they call siped. Um, has a bunch of laser grooves in there. Uh, gives it that flexibility and that traction um, that you want, but it also picks up a lot of rocks. It's like a vacuum cleaner for all these little pebbles. So I'll be picking those out later. But uh, really, we're just a good, lively, responsive ride on this soft terrain. All right, so I'm here in the parking lot of uh, Runner's World HQ with Jeff Dengate. He just got back from his uh, noontime five-miler, and uh, we're standing under the trees in the sun, talking shoes. So running shoes are not cheap, and this one in particular is not cheap. And where is it coming from? Is it, is it sort of like, are runners asking the industry to like innovate, 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 or is the industry sort of prompting runners to, to aim for something bigger and better? So the first of anything is never cheap. And so this kind of first shoe of its type here, it's $175. It's a lot of money. But that's because it's the first one that they're doing. We've seen it with other um, footwear technologies as well. The Flyknit was the first one that we saw from Nike that was kind of recently uh, expensive and has been brought into other shoes at other price points. Uh, from Adidas, the boost material that they use for their midsole, it's a, a different material that is really resilient and durable and uh but it came at a really costly uh price when it came out in 2012 but now adidas is rolling that to every one of their shoes that costs more than 100 bucks so it does end up coming down to you but if you want to be one of the first ones to get it you have to pay okay so there are this range of price points so many different shoes People must ask you all the time, like, what, what do I do? What's, you know, do I go the latest and the greatest and shell out a whole bunch of money? Or do I kind of look at a shoe that's been around for years? Uh, what do you tell them? So I always tell the runner who asks me, what shoe should I get? Go to the store, go to your running retailer, try on a few different pairs. Yeah, if you want to try on this $175 pair of shoes, by all means do. Put it on. Find out what works best. Um, you likewise could at the exact same time try on a $100 pair of shoes. And that may work better for you and feel more comfortable and fit the shape of your foot a little bit better. Um, it doesn't matter how much money you spend. If it's not the right fit, you're not going to wear it and you're not going to have a good experience running. And that's ultimately the key is having that good experience. So getting something that really works for you. And it, first, it really starts with fit and feel. So you have to put your foot in it first. Great. Well, thanks, Jeff, for taking time to talk to us in the parking lot today. And uh, I'll let you go take a shower now. That was Jeff Dengate and Christine Fennessy talking shoes. It goes without saying that running is, for a lot of people, more than just a great workout. 
Here's editor Christine Fennessy again to bring you the story of 38-year-old marathoner, digital media producer, and performance artist Joseph Tame. Running while wearing some pretty wacky costumes has quite literally changed his life. This video you're hearing, it's of the Tokyo Marathon, 2011. That is the sound of 10 Japanese cheerleaders losing their marbles because they've just seen the runner Joseph Tame in his crazy outfit. Here's Joseph explaining what he was wearing. So camera operators will have these things that hook over their shoulders and stick out in front of them that they can mount their camera onto. So it's a kind of frame that I pull down over my head which would hold up to four iPhones for live streaming video for Twitter and for phone calls whilst running so I had an iPad I was using a Twitter app that would read tweets to me whilst I was running I was live streaming my heart rate I had an environmental sensor which would in other words Joseph is not your typical costumed runner his costume was even more bananas than that Back in 2011, battery life for iPhones was really bad. So he had a pouch strapped around his waist that was stuffed with spares. And he had pink rabbits strapped onto his shoes. And a bicycle helmet on his head. And on top of the bicycle helmet... I dismantled this bird feeder, and a part of it looked like a satellite dish if you turned it upside down. So I have this satellite dish on my head and these two pinwheels. And I would tell people that that was the satellite dish for the high-speed data network I needed for live streaming video, when in fact it was a bird feeder. And they'd be like, oh, wow, I never knew such a thing existed. So I have a lot of fun with people, and usually I tell them the truth in the end. In total, his getup weighed about 10 pounds, which might not sound like much, but that's like hauling around a gallon of milk and half a cantaloupe that bump and rub with every step for 26.2 miles. I just remember it weighed so much. I was exhausted and I swore that I would never do that again. But he did do it again. In fact, Joseph has now run the Tokyo Marathon seven consecutive times. And every year, his live streaming getup is super high tech, bizarrely whimsical, and usually very uncomfortable. His finish times average around six hours. To understand why Joseph would do this to himself, we have to go back to 2008. Joseph had just moved to Tokyo from the UK when a friend asked him to go for a run. And I was like, oh, come on, you know I can't run, I don't run. And, but, you know, I wanted to, to hang out with him and stuff. So in the end, I decided reluctantly, OK, let's go running. I still remember running my first five kilometers. It nearly killed me. Uh, huffing and puffing. Oh, it was crazy. Running was just not his thing. But it was around this time that the iPhone came out in Japan. Now, real quick, three things to know about Joseph. He loves recording things. He's kept a diary since he was 10. He loves inventing things. And he's an early adopter. And then I discovered on the iPhone you could record your runs. You could use a GPS app. At that time, there was no uh, special app for running. There was just this one for, for hiking. And I used that to record the GPS route of our runs. And 
That was amazing because I could go home and I could look at this map and I could see where I'd run and my speed and things. And having that that um, record of what I just achieved, that completely kind of changed the experience for me. And it made me feel like, wow, that was worth it. So for me, it was actually when I combined technology with running that it became something that I could sustain. In 2009, Joseph gets to put his running slash technology relationship to the test. His running buddy convinces him to sign up for a 10K. Now, Joseph is pretty sure he can't run that far, but he's like, fine, I'll run the 10K. He's a little freaked out about finishing the race, but instead of, you know, training a lot, he starts messing around with his iPhone and trying to figure out how he can jailbreak it so he can live stream his run. And how to attach it to his forehead. Thanks to an armband, a baseball cap, and lots of tape, he rigs it to his head. So when the race starts, he figures he's set. His phone, quite impractically, is strapped to his forehead, and he's ready to beam the events to his followers. But from the gun, all that live streaming forces him into a major rookie mistake. I knew there were people watching. I had about 1,000 viewers. And I thought, well, it's going to be really embarrassing if they see me running really slowly. So I ran the first 5K really fast. (laughs) And then I was nearly dead. And I was like, oh, no, you know, I don't think I can make it to the end. And I seriously considered, like, dropping the iPhone and pretending that the stream had um, failed. It was rough, but Joseph finished. After that, he kept running. He didn't love it, but he liked how technology made running interesting. The following year, he entered the lottery with his friend for the 2010 Tokyo Marathon, and they got in. So he upped his game. He'd not only record his Sufferfest in real time, he'd carry multiple iPhones and enlist a team of his friends to help him interact with viewers. He got over a thousand tweets an hour. And so it began. In 2011, the year those cheerleaders lost their marbles, Joseph designed his over-the-shoulder iPhone holder. In 2012, he wore an excruciating-looking contraption that resembled a chair strapped to his chest. A chair that held, among other things, a MacBook. In 2013, you could barely see him beneath all his wires, pinwheels, and battery packs. In 2014, he wore a GoPro attached to a three-foot-long camera boom on his head. This particular getup hurt a lot. In 2015, security at the race forced him to strip down to just the basics. A couple of iPhones mounted on his chest and a battery pack around his waist. 2016? Now this was a milestone year for Joseph. For the marathon in February, he wore a 360-degree live-streaming camera system on his head. It was, he says, and perhaps not surprisingly, the first time an athlete has worn such a thing during a major sporting event. So that's right. You could run with Joseph virtually, in real time, and see who is on his right, on his left, and on his ass every step of the way. The whole getup weighed about 15 pounds, nine of which were batteries that were in a pouch around his waist. Okay, my trousers are falling down because I'm carrying so much stuff. Half marathon in the bag. Oh, I 
easy to hear about Joseph and his costumes and feel cynical. This is, after all, the age of, look at me, look how awesome I am. Because on the surface, Joseph Tame looks like every other tech-obsessed exhibitionist, out there tirelessly reminding his flock of his innovative coolness. Except that's not why Joseph wears the stuff that he wears. Breaking down the social barriers, making friends, making people laugh, making people smile is, is my core motivation. If I couldn't do that, then I don't think I would do any of this because it would all be about me. And um, despite what it sounds like, it's not all about me, honest. <laughs> um, you know, the the whole reason is so that I can share in crazy experiences with other people. Um, you know, that's what life's all about. It, it, it's about interacting with others. And there's so much bad news and uh, negative news and, you know, things are tough for a lot of people. So if I can bring some joy, some craziness, some reminder that life doesn't always have to be so serious, then that's really wonderful. And, and that's the motivation that keeps me uh, doing all these projects. See, Joseph's not after the attention. He's after the interaction. As a foreigner, he's discovered that running and wearing wacky stuff is the ultimate social passport. In fact, he regularly runs around Tokyo wearing bicycle helmets rigged with flashing lights and pinwheels and an LED sign that flashes his name in Japanese. Last December, he spent 10 days running around town wearing a 55-pound Christmas tree costume wrapped in 1,500 LED lights. He wears stuff like this on the run so he can talk to people. That kind of social interaction is rare in Tokyo. Tokyo is a great city, but people do keep themselves to themselves much more than, say, in the UK and I think uh, the US as well. Strangers will not start conversations with strangers. So for me to be able to go out there, go running with um, a crazy hat on, uh, that completely changed my relationship with Tokyo. It becomes this positive feedback loop for Joseph. The more he ran, the more he learned about his adopted city. The more he explored the city and met its people, the more fun he had on the run. For Joseph, that's when the switch flipped. That's when running became his thing. The police in Tokyo love me. They have such boring jobs because it's such a safe country. So they'll come cycling or running after me. And they'll say to me in Japanese, like, hmm, you're probably not doing anything bad, but what on earth are you doing? <laughs> and uh, the local police, they, they know me quite well and they'll be like, oh, it's okay, it's just Joseph. So. so I guess the cynics aren't entirely wrong. Joseph does want your attention, but he hopes you'll stop him, talk to him, ask him what the hell he's got on his head or his feet or his legs. He hopes you'll go home with a smile on your face and a good story to tell. Two weeks before he completed this year's Tokyo Marathon, however, Joseph wondered what it would be like to run 26.2 miles wearing just, you know, running stuff. So I decided that I wanted to run a marathon uh, distance without any live streaming gear, without constantly talking, without any technical problems, without any crazy gear except for regular running clothes. Um, so a few days ago, 
I ran the Tokyo Marathon course and I was able to complete it in uh, three hours, 48 minutes. I felt so good that today I went out and I did 42K again. That's two marathon length training runs, four days apart, two weeks before the actual race itself. Yeah, four days later. <laughs> and uh, it was also it was uh, f- three hours, 46 minutes, so about the same time. But the thing that struck me was like, wow, when you don't have to talk and wear all the gear, it's really not that bad at all. <laughs> For most of us, running a marathon PR means months of speed work and maybe a hardcore diet. All Joseph Tame has to do is put on a shirt and a pair of shorts. To see photos and videos of Joseph running the Tokyo Marathon, as well as his stint as a mobile Christmas tree, go to runnersworld.com slash audio. Okay, it's time for The Kick, our weekly roundup of offbeat, newsworthy stories we've been following around the office that you may want to talk about on your weekend group run. I'm here with editor Brian Dalek. What are we doing on The Kick this week, Brian? Well, David, if you work at Runner's World, there is some basic bits of trivia you have to know, like um, the world records in the marathon. Dennis Cometo, 202.57, Paula Radcliffe. 215.25. Yeah, you cannot get hired here unless you know that information. Right. That was first thing on my priority list when <laughs> I got the job. But one thing I found out this weekend is there's an indoor world record as well for men and women. And that was set this past weekend. Right. It's. I was amazed how far off the actual outdoor world records these times were, but also amazed at just how fast they were, given that these people were running around a track for 26.2 miles. Right. Yeah. Malcolm Richards, he ran a 221.56 at the New York City Armory Track and Field Center this past weekend at a first-time event. And on the women's side, Ali Kiefer, she ran a 244.44. That's almost 30 minutes off of Paula Radcliffe's record out on the road. Right. So how many laps around the track was that again? That was 211 laps on a 200-meter banked track. Right. So it's a little bit shorter track. And they switched directions, right, halfway through wisely to sort of spare themselves overuse injuries and also presumably to just combat the monotony a little bit. Right. I mean, if I run 12 laps on a track, (laughs) like my left side starts hurting if I'm going in one direction. Okay. So you said this is a first-time event. How come we haven't heard about indoor world record marathon attempts in the past? Well, I think one of the main reasons is there isn't much prize money to something like this. It doesn't draw the elite field that goes out and does road races, like you'll see in the Boston Marathon. But this one actually had a little bit of prize money, so people were gunning for this record. Each person walked away with six grand, 1000 for the overall win, and then 5000 for breaking the world record. All right. What's next, Brian? Okay, David, we have tons of training plans on runnersworld.com. We'll get you to your first 5K, your first half marathon, your first marathon. The one thing we don't have is a 5K to couch training plan. Oh, right. The opposite of the couch to 5K. Right. The very popular couch to 5K. Many apps, many training plans out there. And uh, one guy, he he created a video, and we found it very amusing on the site, and we talked to him. And Matt Spade is a filmmaker, so he created this video that focuses on 5K to couch. Here's a clip to give you an idea of his training plan. Not everyone can couch. You have to uh, 
You have to have strong endurance. You have to be able to focus on television for hours at a time. Okay, right. And when I saw that video, I thought it was funny. But I also have to say that I wondered, where was this coming from? Is this filmmaker a runner, or was he a non-runner who's making fun of runners because they're so full of themselves? Well, I think the one thing is the filmmaker, Matt Spade, this was an April Fool's project for him. Uh So that's one thing. And two, he is a runner. He started running six years ago. He was a smoker, 300 pounds. And, you know, he's kind of dedicated himself to running four to five times a week. He's done a couple marathons, a lot of halves. So he kind of sees this world now and just wanted to flip it on its head and kind of make a fun project for April Fool's and share it with the running community. Got it. So he's he's one of us and he's in on the joke. And that's different from somebody on the outside who's telling us what losers we are. Right, right. (laughs) Right. And it should also be noted that if you want to go the other way and get off the couch and actually run a 5K, we have dozens and dozens of training plans that can help you do that at runnersworld.com slash training plans. Or if you're just interested in the 5K to couch idea, check out the video on our episode page at runnersworld.com slash audio. The taper's easy because you're already there. I mean, you're basically... You're tapering while you're training. Right. It's easy to train with your dog. And the the recovery is like a piece of cake. Or when you recover from the 5K to couch, do you actually run? Is that how this works? We'll have to to get back with them on that. All right. What else do we have this week? Okay. So as this podcast actually goes live, I should be driving up to Boston for the marathon. I know you're going, David. I'll be headed up too. And we're One of my all, favorite weekends of the year. We're all excited. It's a great weekend, great racing, great atmosphere. But if you've never been up there, we really recommend this video series that's being done by WGBH Public Broadcasting up in Beantown. Um, they're rolling out 26.2 videos. Yes, I guess there's a .2 video. Um, that highlights you know the history of the race and just the people that make it up. So Dave McGilvery is in there, Roberta Gibb, who we heard earlier in this episode. And this video series isn't just about what makes Boston special. It's about what makes 26.2 miles special for everyday runners. Here's a clip from WGBH. I am competing with the best in the world. And that doesn't happen anywhere else. The Super Bowl the best football players, the World Cup, the best soccer players. In the marathon, the everyday person, everyday athlete can technically compete with the world's best, even though, you know, it's, they're usually way ahead of us. Yeah, that is absolutely one of my favorite things about the sport of running and marathoning in, in particular at an event like Boston, but also marathons in New York and Chicago and other places. There wasn't some hacker playing in the group behind Jordan Spieth at the Masters this past weekend. It really only happens in marathoning. Uh, And, man, I love Boston. It's just so unique. I'm trying to get there. I'm trying to run it myself. I still haven't BQ'd. I might be one of those 88-year-olds who finally BQ's, but I'll be fine with that. Uh, So I'm I'm really looking forward to checking out these videos. But I have to ask, do you know what this .2 video is? The mind just sort of reels at what the possibilities are. They they are keeping the... uh the series kind of a secret. They're rolling out three to five a day leading up to Sunday night. So, you know, check out wgbh.org slash Boston Marathon. You can see the videos as they come out throughout the week. And if you want to follow all of our coverage before the race, during, after, runnersworld.com slash Boston Marathon is the place to go. 
Right. And also, just a reminder, we touched on this in episode one of the show last week, but starting on Friday, April 14th, we are setting up a pop-up audio studio in the Runner's World booth at the Boston Marathon Expo. And we want to talk to you. We want to make you, dear listener, part of a future episode of the Runner's World show. So come on by. We hope to see you there. It's what I've learned. The road can be rough. The tides can turn. But if you work to know yourself, don't have to worry about nothing else. So I run. And that's it for this week's Runner's World show. For my full interview with Amby Burfoot and Roberta Gibb, go to runnersworld.com slash audio. You'll also find photos and videos of Joseph Tame in his crazy running get-ups in the Tokyo Marathon. We'd also love it if you went on iTunes to rate this podcast and give us a review. We really want to know what you think. This show was produced by Sylvia Ryerson with help from Brian Dalek, Christine Fennessy, and Rachel Swaby. The music you're hearing now and that you heard at the top of the show was written and performed by Thunderhoof. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World. Thank you very much for listening. Years seem short, but days seem long. And it's all right if your heart is strong. Whether or not there's a number on your chest.